Hello and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health. In this episode, we pay a visit to the emergency department at Royal Perth Hospital, where we chat with Dr David McCutcheon, who works as an emergency consultant there. Dr McCutcheon has an interesting story to tell, having worked internationally as well as in different cities across Australia. We touch on a range of topics during our conversation, including some of the challenges dealing with patients who are affected by drugs, as well as the collaboration that happens between different types of medical professionals when treating patients with complex medical problems. We were also lucky enough to get a guided tour of the emergency department during our visit, which was very interesting. We enjoyed making this episode and we hope you enjoy listening. So welcome everyone to another episode of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're here today with a very special guest, Dr. David McCutcheon. Hello, how are you going? Welcome. Good, welcome. <laughs> um, so Dave, do you want to let people know a little bit about what uh, your position and what you're doing at the moment? Yes, yeah, so I'm an emergency physician at Royal Perth Hospital. Um, so I work in the emergency department, obviously, and I'm also studying a PhD at the University of Western Australia looking at illicit drugs, particularly the new drugs that are coming onto the market. Yeah, okay. That's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. so we'll definitely talk about that in a bit more detail yeah. later on. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning? How did you get into medicine? Um, yeah, it's a difficult question. I've kind of always wanted to do medicine. Like it was the only thing I really was interested in at school. I never wanted to sit at a desk for work and um, it always just appealed to me. I was a bit biased in that mum and dad were both doctors, so I was kind of exposed to that at home. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's always just just something I've been interested in, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you want to ask Dave about the, the levels? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the one thing that I was kind of really interested in, because I've got a little bit of experience with medicine, but not too much, um, and something that's confused me a lot is like there's lots of different types of doctors and there's different levels of doctors. So When's, when do you start being a real doctor and, and what are the levels after that, I guess? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, so once you finish medical school, the first year is an internship. Yep. So that's when you're a real doctor, you're paid, <laughs> you go to work. So that's after um, six years. So that, right? yeah, Typically. the different courses, are, uh, most medical schools are postgraduate now. Yep. So you will do an undergraduate degree and then um, usually a four-year postgraduate degree. There ah, are still okay. some undergraduate courses around that are six years. Um, so then you spend an internship, which is really a provisional year where you're working under supervision, um, usually rotate through a few different areas, um, but you are working as a doctor, you can prescribe medications. Um, and then after that, you can obtain your general registration, mm-hmm. uh, which opens the door to lots of different jobs that you can do. If you're in the hospital system, you'd be called a resident um, in Western Australia. Um, some other states would uh, you'd be called a um junior medical officer or JMO. Um, Then when you um, become a bit more senior, the next level is called a registrar. Uh, Most registrars are um, uh, in training in a particular specialty, although there are other registrars who are uh, not on training programs. And there you're really more of a decision maker. That's when you'll work with the junior doctors and Um, make decisions about um, treatment for patients and and what you're going to do. Um, If you're in surgery, the registrars will be doing operations under supervision from the consultants um, as part of their training. Um, And then the the final stage is a consultant. So they're 
they're um, qualified specialists in whatever area they're in um, and they um, manage overall uh, all the other doctors and provide more expert level guidance. So mm -hmm. that's, awesome. a, that's a general rundown of the hospital system. Right. Um, obviously, a lot of um, doctors work outside the hospital as well. And so um, general practitioners will, will go through training outside of the hospital setting usually once they've done a few years in the hospital. Um, and yeah, I think most is still the most common specialty to obtain out of medical school will be general practice. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Which is interesting because there's often waiting lists to get in to see a GP depending on where you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. GPs work very hard. Yeah, yeah. they do. Sure do. Yeah. And then how do, you, how do you move from each level? Uh, so it's really uh, dependent on what you're interested in yeah. and um, making the appropriate contacts um, and applying to training programs if you want to get into a specific area. Okay. So uh, if I wanted to be a plastic surgeon, I would speak to the obviously the consultants in that area, say I'm interested. Um, you would um, need to apply through, um, uh, you would need to get some surgical training, some general surgical training, and then move into more specific training in plastic surgery or, or, or whatever, it's, whatever area it cool. is so mm -hmm. yeah it really depends on the different specialties and i apologies to any surgeons listening if i got that wrong but um yeah there's slightly different pathways depending on yeah. which area you want to get so into. so you obviously but, chose emergency then why emergency yeah um i just like the breadth of it like it's just so interesting you can you can see something really minor mm -hmm. um and then you can go to a full-on resuscitation five minutes later um, meanwhile, in the back of your mind, you know that this person with their sore toe is still waiting for a letter or a prescription <laughs> for you. It's just really, yeah. really, really interesting. Um, we see extremes of everything. So we see extreme poverty and, and deprivation, extremely unwell patients. Um, people are often at their sickest when they come in the front door of the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very, it's very, very interesting from that perspective. Um, but I actually really like the challenge of diagnosis. So mm. a lot of what we do in the emergency department, if you think of your um, family or, or friends that have gone to ED, usually you're fairly stable and you've got a, a, a medical problem that needs attention. But um, so, so most of our patients aren't dying when they come to us and they present a bit more of a puzzle that we have to figure out and try and work out what the likely problem is and the likely diagnosis. And that's really, really intellectually interesting. So um, that's what attracted me to emergency medicine. I like the, the challenge of diagnosing things, but also um, the, the challenge of really sick patients and performing procedures on them and running resuscitations and things is, is really cool as well. So yeah, I, I think we have a really interesting job. We're very lucky. Yeah, mm. sounds it, mm. absolutely. And what do you have to do to maintain your currency? Like, is there a, is there a big workload in terms of upskilling or getting up to date with what's going on in the literature and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so once you're a specialist in emergency medicine, and, and it's the same with any other specialty, there are um, uh, continuing professional development requirements. So we, we go to conferences and courses to maintain our skills. Um, and um, obviously, being a, a collaborative workspace, we're, we're always working with other consultants. So we discuss cases together and learn from each other constantly. So... Um, that's one of the benefits of being in a big emergency department like this. Mm. And uh, your path to where you are now has been kind of 
um, varied, and I know you've done a bit of work overseas as well. And I'm thinking about your work in France in particular. Can yeah, you tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that was a a, um, a nice year. So um, my it wasn't my girlfriend at that stage, and I decided that we wanted to um, do a bit of travelling, and so we um, we moved to France for a year, and I worked for International SOS, which is an international retrieval company, um, and I got to fly all around the world, um, basically bringing patients from one place to another. <laughs> They were generally fairly well because um, we were going on normal aeroplanes. Um, and so, yeah, I got to see most continents and travel through lots of airports, uh, which was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. We did a lot of sitting around in Paris as well, which was the best part. <laughs> <laughs> was that a French organisation? Yeah, so they are um, originally a French organisation, although I think the head office is in um, Singapore or Southeast Asia somewhere now. But um, the most of the work was a combination of French and English. So there was a lot of expat workers that we dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, my French is definitely not very good now, but at the time was I could get by um, between my French and my English and mm. managed to get through the work. Yeah. <laughs> and what kind of patients would you be dealing with, I guess? Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the work was, um, was uh, expat workers that, became unwell, say, at a mine site or at a, a, oh, a, a, they're okay. working for a company overseas and part of the agreement is if they became unwell was they would be repatriated back to their home country oh, and that's right. fairly common. Um, the, the cost of healthcare are a lot, um, often it's cheaper to move someone back home where the healthcare is covered than to pay for healthcare in a foreign country mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the countries I went to, the, the healthcare systems were not, not um, the same level as they were in France. So. Yep. Um, particularly some of the African countries, Middle Eastern countries, mm-hmm. um, it was uh, best to bring those patients back home. But yeah, of, often they weren't particularly unwell, um, but it was yeah. many and varied. I did take a, a spinal injured patient all the way from Australia back to France um, with, on a um, stretcher in the back of oh a commercial flight, so yeah. that wow. was quite challenging. Would have been a few um, seats taken up there. Yeah, yeah. They, they took up quite a few. They had to... Um, flatten about six seats and bolt a stretcher oh, wow. on top of that. Um, and then we had a couple of rows reserved for all that equipment at the back of the plane as well. Mm. So you can imagine the cost of that would be quite significant. Yeah. yeah. Um, but other cases, I would just um, sit next to a patient and we'd have a chat. <laughs> it wouldn't be much more than that. So yeah. Yeah. it really did depend. Was there any, any particular place that you went to that you that was like eye-opening or that stands out for you? Yeah, I... I went to Buenos Aires uh, to bring a patient back to France and I was quite surprised. It was at the time there was, I I didn't know a lot about South America at the time, but there was a lot of unrest and um, social change going on at that time. And there were, I was staying right in the middle of the city and there were um, some riots and things and and Mm. demonstrations that were quite full on. It was pretty scary at times. I also, I like walking around cities to get a feel for them and I walked through the wrong area of Buenos Aires and, mm-hmm. you know, when the hair stands up on the back of your neck and yeah. you just think, I, I am in the wrong place <laughs> yeah. right now and yeah. people were stopping what they were doing and watching this guy walk through and right. just walked yeah. very fast and managed to get out of there in time. <laughs> oh, that doesn't um, sound good at all. And that quite surprised me. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting the city to be like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, the other place was Sao Paulo. We mm-hmm. have an interesting story about Brazil, actually, but um, <laughs> Sao Paulo... Uh, we were just flying over it. it. Seemed like forever. I've just never seen a city so big. Right. It was just 
it was just absolutely immense. I don't know if it's still the biggest city in the world, but it certainly has been at some point. Mm. Um, I was actually taking a psychiatric patient from Africa back to Brazil to see, have some ongoing psychiatric care. Um, and when I got to the passport control, he went through the Brazilian section, I went through the foreigner section. And when I got to the front counter, they actually took my passport and these guys with guns came out and said, you're getting back on the plane, you don't have a visa. And our head office always organised all the visas and things. I said, oh, I don't think I need a visa. They would have organised one for me. And they just wouldn't wow. talk to me. And apparently Australians do need a visa to go to Brazil and French people don't. So okay. the, this psychiatric patient was loose in Sao Paulo Airport and they <laughs> oh, wouldn't no. let me make any phone calls and they wow. confiscated my medical bag and my passport and marched me straight back onto the plane. And it was only when I sat down on the Air France plane and the lady came past Champagne and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, can I really quickly make a phone call and managed to call head office and said, there's a psychiatric patient loose in Sao Paulo. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, that's not I what you want. I and then I sat for another 10 hours going back to France. So I may be banned from Brazil, I don't know if yeah, I'm right. blacklisted or something. Wow. So that was that was not a successful trip. Did you hear how that played out with that patient? I did, yeah. I phoned him when I when I got back home and he said, oh yeah, I just called my wife and she picked me up. All good. So, right, okay. Well, that, so that's all right. it was all fine in the yeah. end. Yeah, good outcome, so yeah, that's okay. He wasn't quite as unwell as I think he made out to be. So. Uh, okay, right. <laughs> we got through that one. Good. All right. Oh, oh, that's so interesting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about working in the emergency department here in Perth. You must love it. Yeah, it's obviously intense. It, it's a really intense workplace. Obviously, there's there's people everywhere. It's very noisy. Um, but the thing I love about it is the teamwork. So mm. we all work really closely together, not only the doctors, but also the nurses and the allied health staff and the, the patient support staff. We, we know each other really well um, and there's a lot of camaraderie. And I think that's important in a kind of adversarial um, work environment where things can get really intense. You do need a really good team to, to cope with it. Um, and some places are, are better than others at that. And I think any emergency departments where you don't have that teamwork, it, it becomes quite difficult to, mm. um, to deal with all of the stuff that comes through the door. So that, that's really important and one of the, the great things that we have at Royal Perth. Um, so yeah, it is, it is very intense. We, um, we have different areas of the emergency department, so we'll have one area that will see patients that are uh, less badly injured or who have conditions they could sit in a chair in the waiting room and be, be brought through one by one. Um, so that's, that's more of a minor injured area. We've got the main emergency department where people are mostly on trolleys and are a bit more unwell or in pain or um, in distress. And um, we also have an observation ward where people will go if they need a bit, bit of more sorting out or uh, waiting for some test results or if they need to stay overnight and mm -hmm. hopefully go home the next day. So we'll rotate through different areas and, and get to see the whole spectrum of things. Yeah, so what's the longest people end up in the ward before they would go somewhere else if they needed to stay in hospital? Um, we ideally, the, the longest someone would stay in our observation ward would just be overnight and go home the next day. We do rarely have people that will stay a couple of days if they are particularly unwell or recovering from a, a say a, a drug overdose that takes a couple of days for things to settle down. Um, or they've got some important accommodation thing that might come through and really help them a, a day later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a few reasons why people might stay longer, but usually it's, it's a fairly short stay. And have you guys had any 
issues with the coronavirus yet? <laughs> We've had no cases. We've had a few people that we have isolated um, in our special room and, and tested, but um, no one has tested positive in Perth, okay. luckily. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, it's been quite an amazing process, hasn't it? Like I've, I've never seen a response like has happened mm. in China. They've shut down enormous oh, cities and yeah. people are not moving around. So yeah. I think they may have missed the boat with some of that stuff. It seems to be fairly widespread over there. But, mm. I mean, if anyone can, can put in place the things you need to do with a pandemic like this, it's China. China yeah, it sure yeah. Is. Um, so, yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, we, we've had some practice now. So we've gone through swine flu and SARS and yeah. um, not that it's a respiratory virus, but Ebola as well a few years ago. So... We've got some quite advanced processes in place at Royal Perth to deal with these patients and, and yeah. usually the, the protocol's fairly similar in the way that we isolate the patients mm-hmm. and we've got a special negative pressure room that they go, masks get slapped on and they go straight to that room and then yeah. um, we've, we've got some gear that we can put on to make sure we don't catch it. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and are there any particular groups of people in society that you would see more often than others? Uh, well, I think we're the inner city emergency department in Perth, so we see a lot of patients with drug and alcohol problems. Um, we see a lot of people with homelessness, uh, people uh, experiencing domestic violence and other social problems like that. So I think we probably see a greater proportion of those type of patients than maybe some of the other emergency mm-hmm. departments, although there are other um, outer urban EDs that do uh, come from disadvantaged areas that yeah, see a similar case mix to that. It's like Armadale um, and yeah, yeah, so maybe Armadale and, and Rockingham yeah. might see similar cases to mm-hmm. us. Um, but yeah, certainly I'd say we we do see a lot of those patients, um, yeah. and even people with medical problems that are also complicated by having some of those other issues as well. And does that manifest in them often being brought in by the police, for example? Or? Uh, yeah, we have a lot of interaction with the police force. It's um, with patient safety in mind. Um, they are reluctant to um, put people into the lockup who are um, potentially unwell or might not have a normal mental state um, mm. because they want to make sure that they're going to be okay and get, get monitored adequately. So a lot of those patients get brought into us. They might have some sedation if necessary and then we can have another look at them in the morning. Yep. Um, so we'll often have several patients that are, are um, sleeping or sedated with um, a nurse sitting at the the entrance to the cubicle um, just to make sure that they stay there or can alert us if they're becoming agitated again yeah. and we'll reassess them when we're able to. Okay. That's really commonplace. Do you get a lot of repeat visitors? Uh, we do from those type of um, groups. So yeah. there are some people with chronic diseases that often come back to hospital. So we will see, see people with long-term um, medical problems that come again and again, and we do get to know some of those. But <laughs> I'd say it would be the, the people with drug and alcohol and social problems and homelessness that we would um, see the most. Um, we're often um, their main port of call for medical care and for social input as well. Um, so we, we are kind of a safety valve for them, and so we see a lot of those patients fairly regularly. Yeah, I think the health services are starting to recognise that because there's a lot of allied health workers like social workers and whatnot who do work in the hospitals now, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. The the social workers are pretty busy in emergency. Um, I often have quite a few people to see every morning that have come in the night before um, and they, they do their best to try and um, help people as best as they can, um, mm-hmm. 
find some short-term accommodation where possible. Um, we have a really innovative team at Rolpeth Hospital called the Homeless Healthcare Team. Um, so that's led by um, Dr. Andrew Davies and Dr. Amanda Stafford is one of the emergency physicians here. Um, and they, they run a, um, uh, also a GP service for people who are homeless, but they also visit the hospital um, on weekday mornings and go and see any patients who are home, currently homeless to try and link them into um, accommodation and services that they, um, they might not um, already be linked in with. Um, and they can often provide kind of uh, advice to medical staff if they know these patients really well in the community and um, we can have more of a shared care model of them. So um, that's quite a, a new thing uh, for emergency medicine and the work they've done there, I think the patients are definitely really appreciative of, um, of having that extra service. Yeah. I have to declare an interest there because I do work with them to help them evaluate that program. And um, yes, they seem to be capable of taking quite a bit of the load that those patients might bring to the hospital, like the workload at, you know, to a, a primary care setting. Because often they just need like a bit of medication or, you know, yeah, dressing we, or something. We normally, if they've come to us for medical care, normally we would give the, provide the medical care in the emergency department, but definitely for follow up. Um, mm. I think, yeah, it's a prevention and ongoing kind of low, yeah. level, low level treatment sort of. It's it's just a yeah, it's just a collaboration that's quite useful. We might find a blood result or an X-ray result after these patients have left and have no fixed address and no phone number. It's quite hard to contact someone to say, "Oh, can you come back? You've actually got pneumonia or something like that." Yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, well, they they provide a contact for us and they can follow things up in the community. Mm. Um, they also um, can help get patients to outpatient appointments and things, which is another thing that's really difficult. A lot of our system's geared to um, sending people home and bringing them back to see a specialist, and um, it's quite hard for people who are homeless to make some of these appointments. Yeah, yeah that seems to be a common theme. Yeah. yeah. But it, it seems to be important and a, a new focus for everyone to kind of collaborate together as well, so I think that would obviously improve the emergency department. But not only that, it would kind of improve patient outcomes and all that kind of stuff. So it's a good idea. I like mm. it. Yeah, I think it's definitely <laughs> yeah. patient-focused care and that's that's really what we should be doing is what's best for the patients. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah they, the patients certainly are very appreciative. I think what I like about the homeless team is that the doctors get to know the patients because a lot of them do come in frequently. And so they're, they're able to recognise when something is going horribly wrong for someone based on their circumstances and their previous knowledge and all that sort of thing um, and get that in some cases wraparound support happening and you know there's a, a housing program called 50 lives 50 homes and I know a lot of the homeless healthcare people have been referred to that program if they do require housing and it's led to some really good good news stories yeah it's not my area of expertise but I believe finding housing is is the key thing for people who are homeless and it can lead to improvements in all other areas of their life if they can find somewhere to stay yeah. it's not the street um so yeah we we desperately need more um places for for homeless people to go um other than the emergency department because yeah. often the emergency department they're, they're not here for a medical emergency and it would be great if there was um obviously there's a lot of non-government organizations that provide fantastic resources for for people out there but mm. they're swamped and and yeah. yeah, anything more would be great. Yeah. 
Now, obviously, the emergency department is located here at the hospital, but is it considered to be part of the hospital or is it its own separate department and then you sort of, you know, transfer patients into the hospital as required? Uh, yeah, we I think we're part of the hospital, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we... It, collaboration is the key. So we... Sometimes patients are really simple and they come in with a very clear illness that needs a certain specialty um, that we will then refer to that one specialty and they come into hospital. But often things are a lot more complex than that. There might be um, multiple specialists required or it might be a bit unclear who would be the best person to look after the patient or the best team to look after the patient. And so that's when we really need to be um, collegiate and collaborative and, and speak to our colleagues in the hospital and try and work out where where we mm. could best care for people. Um, we're lucky here. This is a, a pretty friendly hospital. And um, again, it's, it's most of these discussions um, go pretty well. Um, but yeah, it, it is quite complex working out sometimes yeah. which service would be best for a patient. And, and how do you work out when your role as an emergency physician is kind of done and it's the next doctor's role to take over? Like where, where do you kind of draw that line? Yeah, it's a, again, it's a bit of a blurred line. It really depends on the patient. Sometimes if things are really simple, um, then we will we'll hand over to the inpatient team and, and they will take it from there. If the patients are unstable while they're with us, and unstable is a bit of a medical word, but it means um, they're, they're a bit precarious, their blood pressure might be low or the heart rate might be high or they might, we might be worried they would get worse, um, then we will, we will definitely keep... Um, overall oversight of these patients while they're in the emergency department um, but we would like to bring the experts to the bedside as well where necessary and, and we, will, we will collaborate and look after the patients together. Mm-hmm. So in, in theory while they're in the emergency department they're, they're our responsibility but yeah life's never black and white. Always, so, yeah. <laughs> always getting different opinions. Yeah. and Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, a good example would be um, the uh, patients that come in after injury. Mm-hmm. So um, we call them trauma patients. So a lot of people use trauma in a different setting to be more psychological trauma. But in, in hospital, trauma means um, injured patients, really. So we are the state trauma centre here at Royal Perth. So a lot of trauma patients will... Um, bypass other hospitals and come directly to us. We see a lot of injured patients. And it, if anyone is significantly injured, we will they will arrive to an army of people from different specialties all around the bed at once. Um, there'll be um, emergency doctors, maybe the anaesthetists if there's some airway problems, and there'll be the trauma surgeons. Um, and we may have other specialists involved if there's brain injury or ear, nose and throat problems or plastic surgery problems. Um, all around the bedside at the same time and uh, we all collaborate and work out the best way to care for the patient. Mm. So, um, yeah, trauma would be probably the most extreme example of where okay. we, we have everyone at the bedside at the same so, time. As a side question, what would be the most interesting injury you've seen? Oh, that's <laughs> impossible to answer. I've, I've just seen... So many. Everything, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there... I'd, Nothing stands out. Oh, there's. I'm sure yeah, there's a couple. It's just a blur of. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I can't think of a specific case. Um, I probably can't mention individual cases. Anyway. Yeah, no, fair enough. So fair much enough. On the podcast, right, I thought I'd just ask, just yeah, in case you people, could. People do come in with some pretty gruesome injuries, unfortunately. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's part of looking after injured patients, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Well, yeah. yeah. So you've been doing this for a while now, 
Uh, and you you worked in Melbourne for a bit as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. In 2010, I worked at the yeah. Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, which is yeah. also a trauma service, so a okay. trauma centre. So, so fairly, fairly similar. similar work? I'm yeah, assuming. quite a yeah. similar type of hospital yeah. to here. Fairly similar work. And in that time, what sort of trends have you seen? Because obviously we've had changes in people, you know, the rates of people using things like methamphetamine and some of the drugs that you're studying for your PhD. And do, do you see you know, an increase or a decrease in certain types of um, presentations and cases? Yeah, so the first thing is that overall presentations are increasing every year, just continuously, um, out of proportion to our population. So more and more people are coming to the emergency department. Part of that may be because um, we provide a very efficient service. So someone will come to us and they will see a a doctor, often several doctors in a short period of time, have tests done with results available within an hour and get a treatment plan, get referred on to a specialist. Um, whereas if they went to see a GP for the same thing, the, that process might take several days of backwards and forwards and repeat appointments and things. So I think that convenience factor is definitely there. Um, and um, we also a cost is a factor because emergency care is free here, whereas mm -hmm. people may have to pay for things out in the community. So these are kind of decisions for um, the health department and, and government to deal with as to what what they want us to see into the future because it's probably an unsustainable model of, of just seeing ever-increasing numbers of people. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that is providing increased care for those type of patients in the community or restricting what we do in emergency it might be something we see in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but at the moment, obviously, we, we'll see anything that comes to us. Yeah. Um, so numbers are, are going up. Um, I think um, in Western Australia, uh, we have certainly been in an economic rut for quite a while now, mm -hmm. and that is playing out in social disadvantage. So we're seeing more and more people experiencing homelessness, uh, more drug use, uh, more violence, more domestic violence, more violence against staff. So all of that just seems to be gradually increasing. Um, methamphetamine, um, Perth has always had a big methamphetamine problem for as long as I've been a doctor. Oh, yeah. Perth. But, yeah, good old Perth. But it's, um, I don't know if we're at peak meth use now or even maybe slightly past it. Um, mm -hmm. We certainly, uh, a couple of years ago, we would, we would have multiple patients sedated just for psychosis, which is where you um, lose touch with reality. People might be paranoid or having delusions or agitated yeah. um, about things that aren't real necessarily mm -hmm. or, or taking things slightly the wrong way. So we call that psychosis. Um, and that's the end result of, of either being awake for quite a few days in a row or having constant meth stimulation to the brain. And that's, that tends to be what happens. So mm -hmm. uh, have multiple patients like that at any one time, all, all sedated, waking up now and then, potentially violent towards staff, um, trying to leave when they're not right to leave, things like that. So, yep. so that puts a huge strain on the emergency department. Um, it, meth use overall in Australia has decreased slightly the last few years, so it may be that we're over the worst of it, but um, it, it's hard to really say. It's still pretty bad at the moment. So yeah. I think if any one drug, meth is just been a scourge in the yeah. emergency department. It's, yeah. it's really horrible. I mean, if you look at the statistics, it's prescription opioids and benzodiazepines that seem to be implicated in most kind of drug-related 
injuries and emergencies a lot of the time? Um, certainly the deaths. Um, I think they're a lot more potentially lethal, those drugs. So um, if you, particularly people that inject drugs, um, if the dose is slightly wrong, they can stop breathing quite easily if it's a, a heroin or fentanyl or one of those opium-based drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if there's not someone to do something as simple as open the airway or call an ambulance, then people can die. So uh, they're the biggest cause of deaths in the community is the opioid-type drugs. Mm. But they're not as commonly uh, used as the, as meth. Uh, certainly we'd, we'd, we'd see maybe one um, less than one person a day with heroin overdose in our okay. ED compared to multiple patients with meth problems. So. Imagine that, mm. seeing less than one person a day on heroin. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anyone on heroin. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting we, what you have to deal with compared to, I guess, the general public mm. and our knowledge and things like that. Which yeah, kinda... it was a big problem a while ago, yeah. like in the in 90s, I yeah. think. Yeah, um, right. It was the heroin it, glut or whatever they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just been mostly meth yeah, since right. then. Yeah, and I'm, it seems like the meth uh, purity keeps increasing or the strength because people just seem to be... They're getting better, better at the chemistry behind it. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, so the, the data on that is exactly as you say, the, the meth purity has been steadily increasing and it is almost at 100% pure now. Um, so the, I'm not sure the theoretical highest purity it can get in the salt is something like eight somewhere around 80%, right. um, but it, it's pretty much around there now. Okay. Um, a lot of the meth used to be made in, in labs around Perth, sort of in, in houses and things, and mm-hmm. you'd see these regular explosions and funny smells in backyards. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's really decreased because a lot of the meth is now imported from other places, mm-hmm. and it's of such high purity and high quality and low cost that it's not worth people taking a risk, I think, a lot of the time. So yeah. there are still some meth labs around that cause problems from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we do see patients with that some of the gases and equipment is liable to explosions, and so mm-hmm. we, we did regularly see people with injuries and burns and things from meth labs blowing up, um, but that seems to have decreased a bit. So yeah. that's interesting because you must see a lot of, sort of medical cases that have criminal kind of implications or criminal a criminal element to them. What's your obligation in terms of patient confidentiality if the police do get involved or there's an investigation? Yeah, so we, it, that's a really interesting ethical dilemma that we have because um, our goal is patient care and particularly care of the patient that is in front of us, um, not law enforcement. If we were to, say, phone the police every time someone came in with a drug overdose, then people would just stop calling ambulances and coming to us and it would cause significant harm to people. So so we don't contact the police if we suspect illegal activity other than if we have um, obligations under law. So, for example, if we suspect there's child abuse, um, anything like that, then we do have obligations, mandatory reporting that we have to report cases like that. Um, obviously, if we are, are compelled to give information by a subpoena or something like that, then we will do that as well. Mm-hmm. But we, we wouldn't routinely um, contact police. We, we're very keen to work with the police where necessary, um, but we, we have to prioritise patient health over um, other things, I think, as doctors. So it, it does get a little bit awkward in that mm-hmm. situation, um, <laughs> but that's just one of the many, many ethical issues we have to face, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, particularly drug-related things, we um, 
I, I think it's important that people know that it's safe to come to the emergency department and we'll look after them and, and we'll respect their confidentiality. Yeah. And I think just kind of on that note as well as um, what you've mentioned previously with um, violence that can happen uh, with patients who are with psychosis or, or whatever, um, one of the things that I guess you guys need to look out for is yourselves. So how do you deal with a patient who is being violent and making sure that I guess the rest of your staff are, are okay and things like that? Yeah, it's it's really tricky. We unfortunately have a lot of experience with patients who are becoming agitated um, and aggressive. So um, we we have a fantastic security team that work in the emergency department here. There's I think at least four of them on at any one time. They do cover all of the hospital, but a lot of their um, their responses are in the emergency department because that's I think the high high levels of patient distress. Um, they are really good at verbally de-escalating patients. What we have to do as the doctors, I guess, is work out whether someone needs to be in the emergency department or not. Sometimes people just need to leave and cool off. They're just too much of a risk to staff to keep them. So if they came in with a non-life-threatening problem and they were aggressive or threatening people, we would just ask them to leave and, and they can walk out. Um, but quite a lot of the time that's not the case. So they may actually not be of right mind and not be able to take care of themselves in the community or actually present a risk to other people in the community. So those people do actually have to stay. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, we um, if we can't calm people down with um, just security coming past and a show of force, and then we may have to um, sedate people just to give them a, a bit yeah. of a snooze a bit and a breather, bit of a yeah. breather and, and let them calm down. And as, as an emergency physician, are you able to have people made involuntary or does that a psychiatrist need to do that under the mental health legislation? Uh, yeah, so we, we have a psychiatry team that work closely with us in the emergency department. So if, if a patient is to be kept against their will under the Mental Health Act, so that is used where, where people have lost their capacity to make decisions, um, appropriate decisions for themselves and might be putting their reputation at risk or might be at risk of harming themselves or others, um, then they can be kept against their will under the Mental Health Act. So normally it would be our, um, our colleagues in psychiatry who would make those decisions, but we, we do have the power to do that um, okay. as ourselves if we need to. Mm -hmm. There are other patients, say they someone comes in extremely drunk and can barely stand that um, wants to leave the emergency department and he's, he'll walk straight out on the road and get run over by a car. We have an obligation to stop that person from leaving as well. So we'll keep them under what we call a duty of care, um, which is uh, not under the Mental Health Act, but we, we, can, and keep someone, we can keep someone against their will in that situation as yeah. well until we think it's safe for them to leave. That's definitely a legal, a legal construct. Yeah, like a negligence. Yeah, it's again, it's really complicated because people are people have their own human rights, and we have to be really careful that we're respecting their autonomy um, and not patronising them too much, but also that we're keeping them safe. And mm -hmm. there's a grey area in the middle where where none of those things are, are quite true, where we often have to let people leave. Um, so yeah. those nuances. Uh, are very challenging and we often have to make those decisions in a split second. Someone leaps out of the bed, they're <laughs> ripping out all of their cannulas yeah. and, and their things and they're swearing at us and they're saying, I'm leaving. And we have got to very quickly work out if that person is of right mind or not um, mm. and whether they can actually leave or not. And I like to, 
frame it the other way, really, I, I like to say, do we, do we have grounds to detain this person against their will rather than can I let them leave? And that, that kind of simplifies it a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but, yeah, it is really challenging, um, yeah. particularly, again, if that, that's a person that's being violent towards the staff. Of course. Because um, yeah, sometimes you, you just kind of want them, them to leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, like see you later. But. Yeah, but you, I guess we've got to remember that we we have to look after that patient and what their needs are. Mm. So just following on from our conversation about drugs, you are, as you mentioned at the beginning, you are doing a PhD, and I believe it is drug related. Yeah, drug yeah, PhD club. Yeah, I know it's pretty silly, isn't it? Um, so tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, the research project that we, that's the subject of my PhD, is called the WISE study, the WIA Illicit Substance Evaluation. And that was really um, set up to look at um, novel psychoactive substances, or NPS drugs. What they are 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 new drugs that are entering the market or have been for the last um, seven or so, seven or eight years particularly, um, that are designed to mimic often illicit drugs that are already out there. Um, And when these kind of exploded onto the market, they, because our drug laws banned certain substances, a lot of them were actually legal. So people would buy them (laughs) off the internet, they'd buy them from shops. Perth particularly saw an explosion of synthetic cannabis drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, people might know the brand name Chronic, and there was a whole lot of other ones like that, and people often just call them Chronic. Um, but these are, are chemicals that are sprayed onto leaves to look like marijuana, but but they're just new synthetic drugs. Right. And really, over 100 new drugs came out in 2014 in Europe, um, and it's been similar since, I think, maybe not quite as many as when it exploded a few years ago. Um, we don't know anything about these drugs. Um, and what we do see is people um, dying at music festivals um, from, from taking um, what would be considered to be normal amounts of, of what they thought was ecstasy. Uh, we see clusters of people becoming unwell and getting rushed to the emergency department. Um, and we, we really need to understand more about these drugs and, and what they do. Um, with the goal of educating doctors, but also the public about the dangers of these things. Because a lot of people would think, oh, this is, it's a legal drug, it must be safe, um, it can't be as bad as these really horrible illicit drugs. Often these drugs are worse. Like they, they're really dangerous. Some <laughs> Since of them, we haven't written it in the yeah, legal system don't, yet. Yeah, <laughs> we just don't know about them. Yeah. So, um, we, yeah, that, that's the idea is to... Um, so in our study, we uh, would recruit patients who um, presented intoxicated to the emergency department and get some information about them and uh, a blood test. And we're actually having the blood analysed for over 700 new drugs um, just to see what's in the system. We can compare it to what they thought they'd taken um, and we can get some really interesting information about mm. some of these drugs. Um, the, the most interesting series we've had so far is a drug called NBOM. Um, so we have 16 patients who um, who came in with that drug in their system with another drug called 4-fluoroamphetamine, and they were extremely unwell. Most of them thought they'd taken ecstasy. They came in having seizures. Some of them went to the intensive care unit. Um, some of them became extremely, extremely unwell. Um, and um, all of the ones in our series recovered but there have been some deaths around Australia around the same time with with just those two unusual drugs in their system mm-hmm. so um, we'll get to learn a lot about those drugs but also about how they're distributed around Australia and how often we'll get 
we'll get outbursts of, of um, clusters of people becoming unwell in multiple different places, um, which is often from the same drug. So we'll learn a bit about that aspect of things as yeah. well. And so is that so, what your PhD is looking at? You're looking at the prevalence of those drugs and then also the outcomes that are associated with them? or Yeah, we can't really measure the prevalence because we're not we're not enrolling. We didn't enroll all of the patients that came in. Um, plus, our emergency department doesn't see probably a, a good reflection of the general population. Um, but we, in our emergency department, we could certainly work mm. out how many of um, these cases were new drugs compared to more traditional drugs, um, and they they certainly are pretty common. So. Um, I, I can't give you the statistic exactly because we're still trying to work it out. Yeah. But, um, a, a lot more than you'd think were illicit mm -hmm. drugs, uh, were these new illicit drugs. Right, okay. Yeah. And from a public health perspective, once you become aware of a cluster or something happening, um, what's what do you do to get that information out there? I know you, so, you try and publish it, but... Yeah, obviously. so that's one of the really interesting things that we have been doing with the study is it's we've, we've made contact with a, a lot of people in various areas. So um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Soderstrom, um, is one of the toxicologists here and she has been in touch with St. John Ambulance and they're working on um, w providing real-time information to the toxicology service when they think there's a cluster of, of poisonings uh, because you may only get one or two cases at each hospital around Perth and not be aware that this is actually something bigger that's happening. Um, we also are in contact with user, drug user groups um, and um, provide information actually in both directions. Um, warning that we've seen quite a few patients in emergency with, with a particular drug syndrome or they, they might say, we think something's going on in the community, just want to let you know. So these um, collaborations are really useful and I think can um, provide a lot of information in real time. Yeah. That's but so, when yeah. there's also public health imperatives as well. So say there's a really dangerous batch of, of pills that are out in the community that um, look a certain way and we've seen lot, multiple people come in. For people who um, may decide to use or not use drugs, um, putting a public health message out there that these, there's a dangerous batch of drugs and we've seen some deaths or people in ICU from, from this particular drug uh, could potentially be life-saving if people decide not to take these these pills. So mm -hmm. um, we have done uh, a public health message like that uh, a couple of years ago, um, which you never really know if someone doesn't yeah. get sick, do you, <laughs> if they don't take something. But um, <laughs> yeah. definitely could have had that, that type of benefit for people. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, that, that's something that we want to move towards as well. Yeah. What are the channels that you go through to contact drug user groups, as I think you referred to them? Who, who, who? Uh, so there's a, a group in um, WA called Peer-Based Harm Reduction, um, WA, who um, uh, they run a needle exchange in Northbridge, um, but also advocate for um, drug users um, and have really good contacts throughout the community of people who do use drugs um, to disseminate information where required and do a lot of important public health interventions. So, mm -hmm. um, so they're the, the main organisation in WA and there there are other groups in other places as well. Yeah. So that's where... Were they formerly called WASWA? 
Yes, that's yeah, right. So they've, that, they've rebranded. It used to be called WA Substance Users Association. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they do some, some really good work in that area. Yeah, okay. And so we're sort of getting towards the end, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just curious to know what's next for you. I mean, I love working in the emergency department, so um, I'll, I think I'll always be doing <laughs> clinical work in the ED. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not bored of that just yet. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's all for the moment. Yeah. That's enough to keep me busy. Cool. And, and how long left do you have of your PhD? Uh, that's a pretty open question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I know. <laughs> doing, doing clinical work and doing research is, yeah. is quite tricky because it's the, the, there always seems to be more urgent things that come up other than grinding away and analysing data and things. So uh, I don't want to say how long it's going to take because it'll Fair probably enough. take twice as long. But right. yeah, it's probably a few more years to go yeah, to particularly get if that you're finished kind of off. Involved in forming a register as well, like that could take years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there, I'm not the main person involved with organising that, but um, yeah, it's there's definitely plenty on. Mm. Mm. Any final questions? I think that's it. To yeah. be honest, yeah. yeah well, thanks very much for your time, Dave. Yeah, thank no you. worries. Thanks for having me on. It's been great chatting, and uh, yeah, all the best for whatever comes next. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our conversation with Dr. David McCutcheon at the emergency department at Royal Perth Hospital. Many thanks again to David for taking the time to chat with us. If you like this episode or have suggestions about other guests you would like to hear from or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, please send us an email at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. Thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you the next episode. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.